Our scripture this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica. We'll be reading chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives us or gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you, and uh, I'm glad you chose to brave the rain and risk getting wet to worship with us this morning. Thankfully, the rain has let up a little bit. Y'all heard that thunder at like 6.30, right? That was amazing. We don't get a lot of thunderstorms in Okinawa if you're new to the island. So whenever we do, uh, it's fun. I love that. I miss that sound. As we mentioned last week at the conclusion of our worship gathering, and then again in an email this week for those of you who are on our distro list, uh, this morning's sermon uh, will focus on the topic of human sexuality, as you just heard Grant read from First Thessalonians. And uh, while we love having kids present with us and we value families worshiping together, if this is the first time, moms and dads, that you're hearing that this will be the focus of our sermon together and you want to call a family audible, you have time. Uh, I'm going to pray, not a real long prayer, because uh, i got to keep the sermon tight this morning, but uh, I'll pray so that if you need to slip out under cover of darkness, you'll have some. Uh, we have an elementary class next door, goes to, uh, I asked in the first service, third grade? Homeschool, eighth grade, third grade, I'm just messing. Uh, I was homeschooled in high school, so take a deep breath. Uh, it's what now? Oh, perfect, so it's to fifth grade next door. Uh, you can do that, um, or, I mean, if you leave right now, you've got chapel right inside of gate two. Gate one's not too far down the road and Coza's just one exit up the, the expressway. So you have options is all I'm trying to say. I'll pray. That'll be the cover of darkness if you need it. And then we're going to go right down to work. Deal? All right, great. Deal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. I pray that you would give our hearts humility to receive your word. And in receiving your word, to hear it as the voice of a good father, who loves us and um, has spoken good and created good and where we receive limits from you or boundaries from you, even to see in those not restriction, but freedom, that we have freedom from you. Father, for those who are here this morning who are weary and heavy laden, I pray that you would give their souls rest in Jesus. For those here this week um, wounded, sorrowful, lonely. I pray that you would be present with them in a real and personal way, that nobody in here would feel alone in a crowded room, but that they would know that you are with them and that we as a family, however imperfect we are, uh, we are in this together. And so, Father, we thank you for this time. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I titled the talk for this morning, <clears throat> Joe's Pond. As I've shared with you before, Joe's Pond is the first place. It's in Vermont. It's a very, it's a very isolated lake, even though it's called the pond. Pretty much every lake in Vermont is the size of a pond. Um, it's the first place that my dad had a very honest and real conversation with me about my sexuality and human sexuality in general. Uh, here's a picture of uh, a few of my family members on Joe's Pond, and that boat that you're looking at on the right, that's actually the very boat where all of those conversations unfolded. Uh, that's not me. That's my little brother, Ben. 
I actually showed you last week a picture of Ben as an adult, if you remember. And uh, they must be on the way back. Uh, he's too young to have had that talk. I just wanted you to see a picture of the boat. But had they had the talk, if this was the day they had the talk, given the expression on his face and the way his body is postured, clearly they're coming back. And he just wants out of the boat, right? And uh, uh, the other side, that's just uh, my older brother and I in, our, in the paddle boat that we borrowed. And uh, I want to say, uh, so we're going to take a ride on Joe's Pond this morning, all right? We're a family. Um, and this is, you can leave the pictures up for a moment. This is a family talk. In fact, you notice when Grant read, one of the very first words in this passage is brothers, right? Uh, so we're going to have this chat as a family. We're going to get in the boat. We're going to go out on Joe's Pond. And we're going to talk together about our sexuality uh, and have a, a family chat. I mention that because I want to say it's entirely possible that there are some of you in this room who are not yet followers of Jesus or don't imagine yourself as a follower of Jesus, but you're here. Um, you are more than welcome to get in the boat with us. Uh, know that we, it will be a family chat. So we're not an angry family. We're not a hostile family. So uh, while we're riding out on this boat, you know, like two things my dad never did. He never hit us with those oars, uh, never hit anybody else in another boat with those oars. He was a gentle man. Uh, as he was explaining human sexuality to us, he never threatened to like hold our heads underwater and, you know, waterboard us until we agreed or said, yes, dad, I won't have sex until marriage, right? Like uh, this is not a coerced conversation or one that's presented with force. It's a family conversation. And if you are here as a guest, we'd love to have you in the boat with us. But know that we will be humble and gracious. And if you don't share the view that I'm about to articulate from the Bible, uh, we will not make you the object of our scorn. You're not going to get yelled at. We're not going to kick you out of our little boat ride and let you swim back. Um, we're, you're more than welcome to ride with us. Joe's Pond. Um, here's my big idea for our ride around Joe's Pond this morning from the passage. It goes like this, my sexual orientation needs daily reorientation around Jesus, okay? Uh, my sexual orientation needs daily reorientation around Jesus. And you're like, John, I know you try to choose or craft big ideas that come right out of the text. I'm not peeling you on this one because I don't see the idea of orientation or reorientation uh, here in 1 Thessalonians 4. And I would just say, yeah, you do. Let me, let me show you where you see it. It's right here. Verse 1. Check this out. Finally then, brothers, right? Here's our family talk. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you what? You received something. And then based on that receptivity, uh, you received from us how you ought to walk. In the New Testament, walk often simply, it's a metaphor for live, right? How you live a life, how you walk through your life. Uh, you received how you ought to live and so to please God just as what? You're doing. So they receive something, they're doing it, and then what does he say? Uh, that you more and more. That's reorientation. In other words, the whole, this whole section is about human sexuality, okay? So that's the given. That's the given. And, um, and, and now what we see is... Um, this idea of reorientation. In other words, we received something from Paul. What's that something we received? This letter was written into a sexually permissive and predatory, predatory culture uh, that trafficked humans for sexual activity and, um, and actually affirmed and celebrated and encouraged sexual exploits um, especially, you know, so little changes in so much time. Like uh, sometimes we were like, man, how can this letter be relevant at all to uh, the conversation about sexuality now in our generation? And I would submit to you when Paul wrote this letter, the sexual ethic then is essentially the same as it is now. Permissive, uh, predatory, because you can't have a sexually permissive culture without the predatory underbelly. Like that's, that's got to be there. Uh, so permissive, predatory, and all about human trafficking to gratify sexual desire. So the only thing different is they didn't have the internet. Same culture, okay? very relevant. And I would even submit to you, uh, for young men, it was more likely that their sexual exploits would be affirmed, encouraged, even celebrated. There was, there was kind of a certain measure of, hey, do this thing discreetly, but we affirm it and encourage it. 
uh, but the same kind of affirmation was not given to ladies, particularly if they were already married. So there was this real double standard that existed in that culture. I'm telling you, like very few things change over time, right? So Paul says, we spoke a true and better word about your human sexuality into this wasteland of sexual identity and expression. You received it, you oriented your life around it, right? You've, uh, God has rescued you and adopted you in a family, you've oriented, you've been doing, and now we're urging you, we're gonna unpack it a little bit more. Keep doing daily, keep reorienting your life around uh, Jesus rather than yourself as it relates to your sexual identity and sexual expression, right? So there's our big idea flowing right out of verse one, my sexual orientation, because I'm a kid that grew up in this sexually permissive culture, right? This is, this is, this is my native land. And so I have learned sexual habits and learned sexual expectations and sexual values that need to be deconstructed and uh, the orientation needs to be co come off of me and placed on Jesus, right? So my daily, 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 my sexual orientation needs to be reoriented on Jesus. So there's the idea of orientation. We saw the idea of family. Here's our outline uh, for the morning. For those of you who like outlines, want to take notes, very simple. What we're going to see, Paul, is uh, this idea of trust, okay? Because orientation is all about trust. You orient your life around what or who you trust. I'm a Family Mart guy, so I've got my 10 Family Mart stops. My kids know exactly where they are, so they know that when they're in the car, if there's any chance they're getting a snack, they know the landmark by which they need to introduce the conversation like that. I'm kind of hungry. Like, they know. They know my Life in Okinawa is oriented around particular family marts. For you, it's Lawson's, 7-Eleven, shame, but, you know, <laughs> there you are. Uh, depending on what you trust for your news source, you orient your life around that. Depending on what you trust for your workout plan, you orient your life around that. You got your CrossFitters, you got your runners, you got your Olympic, whatever. Whatever you trust by way of a diet for your body type and so forth, you orient your life around these things. So, no different with our sexuality. We orient around who or what we trust. And so this boat ride on Joe's Pond this morning, as we explore this passage, is an invitation to every one of us to abandon the doctrine or dogma of our culture that would say, trust culture, or really the culture's dogma is trust yourself, trust how you feel, right? So it's an invitation to abandon trust of yourself or the culture as the authoritative voice over your sexuality, and instead to trust your creator king, not culture. And so the key word there is abstain. Our culture preaches indulge, because if your feelings are the king, uh, you indulge. If Jesus is the king, you abstain, right? Second idea, trust your dad, not your desires. Key word, control. Uh, in the gospel, we learn that we don't trust all of our desires, and so we exercise control over them. The culture would preach the opposite dogma that I feel, therefore I am. Trust your feelings and let them control your choices, okay? So complete opposites. Um, and third and finally, trust the avenger, not adventure. And if that's a little confusing, I'll unpack it when we get there. And the idea, the key word in that, that portion is honor. Good, you got the outline? All right, let's, let's do work. First idea, trust your creator king, not the culture. Let me show you a few, few keywords in here, like John, where do you get this idea of creator king? Verse one, finally then brothers, we ask and urge you in what? Lord, we'll see that repeated, Lord Jesus, that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the, here it is again, through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. Um, so two key words I want to hone in there, Lord and will. So the first word, Lord. When the authors of scripture join the name Jesus with the title Lord, they are communicating a couple really important ideas. The first is the deity of Jesus. When you see Lord Jesus, unapologetically, writers of scripture are saying Jesus is God. There are some secondary ideas that flow out of that. It's not just that Jesus is God. As God, he is, Lord would imply he's our king. That's a, that's a kingly word. He is 
kingly authority. And we understand from the narrative of scripture as our God, who is our king, he is also our creator, right? He is our creator king. So there's one crown in the universe and it's already resting on Jesus' head. Meaning there is no crown for me to take and place on my own head or on my desires as it relates to a self-rule or being, my, I don't have that authority over my sexuality and my desires don't have that authority over my sexuality. There's one crown in the universe and it already rests on our creator king's head. Uh, one of my favorite gospel songs that helped me remember and rehearse this uh, truth in a creative way this week as I prepared for this sermon is uh, one of Metallica's songs entitled King Nothing. Go ahead and scorn. Uh, it's entitled King Nothing. It's one of the richest uh, set of gospel lyrics out there. So King Nothing is a song that tells the story about a man who puts a crown on his head, metaphorically, to live as though he is his own king. So as his own king, what he does is he pursues every desire that he has until his desires lead him to a point of life in this perceived castle. His castle crumbles and the perceived crown falls off of his head and dashes to pieces on the ground. So over and over and over again in the song, they sing, where's your crown, King Nothing? I'm like, holy cow, that's, a real, that's like the best gospel song not written by a Christian artist. That's the same question that's being asked. We culturally and individually have crowned ourselves kings and queens over sexuality, when in reality, there's one crown in the universe, and it's already on the head of our creator, King Jesus, and he's the only one who speaks with authority over our sexual desires, our sexual identities, and our sexual uh, expressions. Jesus is our creator, King. And our king has a will for this area of our lives, for our sexuality. See that in verse 3? This is the will of God. Who's God? Jesus is God. Our creator king is God. And our creator king has a will, a desire, a design, a plan for our sexuality that would lead to flourishing and life. This is his plan. And uh, Paul, Paul doesn't, like, he's so specific here, and I love this. Because the question we would ask is, all right, if our creator king has a will for our sexuality, uh, what is that will? It's as if the text anticipates that question. And here it is. Here's the answer, which is beautiful because how many times in your life have you simply expressed, I wish I could just know God's will for my life? Well, there it is. Like, here it is, like black and white. And maybe one of the most crucial areas of our, our lives, our sexuality. And here it is. The will of God, your sanctification, and then he's going to explain what sanctification is. Sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So let's hit that word sanctification real quick. Because this, this, honestly, it, for those of you who remain to be skeptics about my idea of reorientation, sanctification is a very near synonym for reorientation. Because sanctification is a word that communicates <clears throat> the process of becoming, the process of becoming. So to be sanctified means that I was dedicated to one thing. I trusted something, I oriented my life around it, but now I'm separating out from it. I'm separating away from it. And I have replaced the object of my trust, so now I'm devoted to a new king, if you will, and in my devotion to this new king, I'm working to conform all of my life and to submit joyfully to his or her, to, to that uh, thing or person's influence in my life. That's sanctification, the process of becoming, right? So um, if I grew up in this culture, I'm sanctified around a particular sexual ethic. But when I take the crown off of my head or I take the crown off of the culture's head, and rightfully, I see it for the first time on my creator, King's head. Well, that process of sanctification starts in my life. I've been reoriented, and now I'm sanctifying, reorienting, uh, because I have a new devotion. So I'm, now my sexual ethic is going to be different than the one I had in my culture. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to come out from that thing, uh, orient on Jesus, and that's going to look very, 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 very different. That's sanctification. And so the will of God for, so let's make this very clear. 
For those of us who have grown up in the sexually permissive culture that we have, God's will for you is that you would identify the areas in which you have crowned culture or your feelings, your convictions as king, that you would take the crown off of the culture's head and your feelings head, that you would acknowledge the crown is on your creator king's head, and you would orient your life around King Jesus and daily reorient your sexual orientation as he rescues us and restores us from the wasteland that is our, cultural, our culture's sexual landscape, right? Sanctification, this is God's will for us. All right, so what's the first piece of this reorientation, this sanctification? That you abstain from sexual immorality, all right? So if I'm going to be, if I'm stepping out from what I was oriented around and I'm orienting around Jesus, he's calling me to stop doing something, to abstain from doing something. He calls it sexual immorality. And so we got to ask the question, if we're being told to abstain from something, what is that something? Uh, so let's take the word immorality as it relates to our sexuality. Immorality would imply the overstepping or stepping beyond a boundary uh, limits that have been established for me by somebody else, right? So um, immorality would be going beyond those limits in my sexuality. Well, what are those limits? What limits or what boundaries has my creator king established for my good as it relates to my human sexuality? If we would look back at the creation account in Genesis and then follow that thread of narrative as it relates to our sexuality through all of the Bible, we would see this consistent borderline that we could draw clearly and without ambiguity on the map of our souls, right, as it relates to sexual identity and sexual expression. Here's how I like to say it, and then I'm going to give you a quote from somebody who's way smarter than I am and says it better. I would say it this way. In God's goodness, in his kindness, the limits he's given to us, the boundaries, our sexuality would be expressed and enjoyed within a marriage between one man and one woman as an act of self-giving love. There's the general boundary or borderline. Now, Tim Keller unpacks it a whole lot better, and I, I really don't normally give you long quotes in a sermon. I just want to give you one because I really like the way he says it. Here it is. The gospel shows us that sexuality is supposed to reflect the self-giving of Christ. He gave himself completely without conditions. Consequently, we are not to seek intimacy while holding back the rest of our lives. If we give ourselves sexually, we are also to give ourselves legally, socially, and personally. Sex is to be shared only in a totally committed, permanent relationship of marriage. And then he makes this point, he draws this conclusion. Sex in our culture is no longer something that unites. Now, we could stretch that no longer all the way back to Thessalonica. This is not unique for us. No longer something that unites people together in binding community. Here's a key word. It is a commodity for exchange. So notice this contrast. King Jesus gives sex as a good gift within a covenant, a committed relationship, a marriage between one man and one woman, we crown ourselves or the culture and sex becomes a commodity with me at the center. Because see, that's the real reorientation right there. I'm created to orient my identity and all of life on Jesus. In rebellion, I place myself at the center. So my sexuality ceases to be about covenant expression. And now it becomes about a commodity exchange, right? The Bible tells us that sex is designed by God, not as a means of self-gratification, not me at the center, but as a means of self-donation that creates stable human community. Some of you are writing, oh, it's already gone, sorry. I can get that to you later if you wanna see it. I can't tell you how much reorientation I have to do in my life. Man, I grew up in the same world you did, maybe 20 years earlier than you did. Nothing's changed. You guys just have easier access to stuff I'm really glad I didn't have easy access to as a, as a teenager uh, or as a young Marine. Holy cow. 
I mean, I already wandered the wasteland of sexual brokenness as a young man. Um, it horrifies me to think how many more days I would have spent in that wilderness or how much further I would have wandered into that wasteland had, if I had had the same technology at my fingertips that, that you have now. So this beautiful vision of our human sexuality with God at the center for the good and the flourishing of another. Guys, I spent most of my life with myself at the center of my sexual orientation. All about me, what I want, what I desire, the commodification. That's a word, right? Commodity? That's a, can we say commodification? I'm getting a nod from an AP English teacher. Okay, <laughs> commodification. Dude, I, I commodify the crap out of sex. And if you're going to do that, it means you commodify people. You can't have sexual permissiveness without a, an underbelly of sexual predatory pursuit. The writer of Hebrews writes about it this way. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all because it's beautiful. God's design for our human sexuality is right and it is beautiful and it is good for human flourishing. So honor it, honor those bounds, the limits, the borders, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, meaning receive God's intent for our human sexuality, orient your life around it, and don't wander beyond the boundaries that he's given to us out of kindness. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We'll see that a little bit more as we unpack this text. So the first invitation then that we have from the text is, trust your creator king who gives this beautiful design. Reject the trust that we have all expressed in our culture, or in the dogma that our culture preaches, a trust for myself in my own sense of sexual identity, pursuit, or expression. The second idea in the text is trust your dad, not your desires. And if the first point gave us a stark contrast between orienting your sexuality around Jesus, crown on Jesus' head versus crown on your head or the culture's head, this one's even more stark. Uh, says that each one of you, so we're still talking about your sanctification, the process of becoming, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness, like um, in holiness, uh, very closely related to sanctification, and in honor, honoring God, honoring God's design, and honoring the good of other people. In other words, a sexuality, like a controlling of my sexuality that honors other people instead of uses other people, right? That could be another way of saying it. Um, control his or her own body. That word body there, you can just understand it as like literally sex organs. It's what he's saying. Or if you just wanted to take it out to the sense of the word body, sex organs, or like sexuality, your sexual desire. That's the idea that's communicated there. Um, control this, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So passion of lust simply means really strong desire, okay? So sexual desire. And what he's saying is um, he's not slandering people who are Gentiles. He's saying like categorically the Bible thinks of people who are, uh, have reoriented their life around Jesus, Jesus' family. And if you've not done so, you're broadly probably in this category of Gentile, people who are far from God. So uh, I have serious Gentile roots, right? So in my Gentile roots, I followed my sexual desires. In other words, the crown, the kingly crown rested on desire rather than my dad. This is most clearly our culture's chief ethic, you feel, therefore you are. Trust what you feel. Feeling is ultimate. And if there is a pathway to self-gratification, if there's a pathway to self-fulfillment, if there's a pathway to joy, if there's a pathway to actually truly living, you need to see in your feelings who you are as a person and then chase those feelings down hard because that's who you are. So joy is found at the end of that pursuit. Feels like freedom, but if you have lived that way, you know it is a pseudo-freedom. That is a slavery. And Jesus as king offers a true and better word. He offers freedom from the subjective life of placing the crown on your desires 
And what Jesus invites us to is to learn a new orientation that is trusting dad and doubting desire. Whereas pre-Jesus, with orientation on myself, I doubt dad. If God is my father, maybe we doubt his existence, or maybe we doubt his goodness. If God's good, why would he place limits on something so beautiful and sacred to me? Doesn't he want me to be happy? If God is good, why would he allow me to feel this way? If I feel this way, surely in his goodness he would want me to act on it. But instead, the Bible calls us to trust dad, doubt desire. And you're like, why, why should we doubt desire? If God's good and he creates, like if you think about the creation narrative, God creates all this stuff. He's like, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he creates mankind and he looks at him and he says, what? Not just good, very good. And if in my humanity, my desires have to be wrapped up in that, right? So then my desires were very good. So why shouldn't I trust how I feel? Well, we'd be skipping a very important part of the narrative. It's what we, we refer to as the fall. It was the moment where Adam and Eve were living a life oriented around God and chose instead to take that crown and attempt kingly rule, put it on their own heads, and to live beyond the limits of God's good, kind, kingly rule. And in that moment, the, um, uh, the beauty was broken and a curse ensued. And God tells Adam and Eve that uh, all of earth, the, the entire world would fall under a curse and that what was beautiful inside would be uh, broken and jumbled so that for life, there would be this intermixing of good desire mixed with uh, desire that cannot be trusted. And so the Christian ethic has a radically different approach to our desires. Um, this will be familiar to some of you. It's in Galatians. It's on the screen for you. It goes like this. Galatians 5, 24 to 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with what? Its passions and its desires. What do you do when you crucify something? You kill it. Okay, so if we can contrast this, the world we grew up in sexually, what we were all taught to believe was place the crown on desire. And then Jesus gives us a better word and a better vision of human sexuality. And the better word, rather than saying, place a crown on desire, says you kill that desire. You take the crown and you, you kill that desire. Any desire that would lead us to live beyond God's good limits for our sexuality, I put that to death. In other words, if the crown's going to be on King Jesus' head, that crown on my desire has got to die. Uh, I like to say it this way when thinking about sexuality, uh, it goes like this. My sexuality is not mine to appropriate. It is a good gift within limits appropriate. Man, that word appropriate uh, gets a lot of cultural mileage, mileage now, and that's good. Um, but can we just be honest for a moment? If, Jesus, if our lives are not oriented on Jesus at any given time, I'm appropriating my sexuality. I'm asserting a kingly rule over it, saying it's mine to define, mine to exercise, mine to pursue. But in God's true and better view of our human sexuality, it's not mine to appropriate. It is a good gift, however, to enjoy within limits appropriate. Uh, one more point in the, in the text, um, and that is this. Reorientation around Jesus is also an invitation to trust not my sense of sexual adventure, but the reality that there is an avenger for every overstepping of sexual expression. Notice in verse 6, it says, uh, part of my sanctification, right? part of reorienting on Jesus means that no one transgresses or wrongs his brother or sister in this matter, in the area of our sexuality. Why? Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand, and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, you're not disregarding me, Paul says. You're, you're disregarding God who postures himself as an avenger. Now, these two words, transgress and wrong, are very, very helpful for us. If it is true that God in his goodness has established a borderland, boundaries for our sexuality, 
then any time we follow, we put the crown on the head of our desire and we follow that over the borderland, we are trespassing, right? Against God, sin, rebellion. But the way we're to understand our sexuality is it's impossible to, 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 um, it's impossible to trespass in isolation. I mean, that would be a silly idea anyway. Anytime in your life you have trespassed, what does that mean you have done? You have gone on to what? Somebody else's rightful place. Guys, there's no such thing as sexual trespass in isolation. We trespass against God, and we have to trespass into the sacred spaces of other people. And when we do, look at the word that Paul uses here. Every trespass is a wronging, a wounding. It's sacred. I like what Sam Alberry says. He says, one of the reasons we know sexuality is so sacred, matters so much to God, is because we can see the trauma that occurs when someone is sexually violated. And guys, this is so much more than a quote for our family. This is real, because in this room right now, there are many persons who have been sexually violated in their lifetime. Violated to the point that what God intended for good and for joy and for pleasure is now a source of pain. And it feels as though it will always be out of reach as a good thing because of the brokenness that is so deeply imprinted in a wounded person's soul. Every trespass wounds an image bearer of God. And God postures himself as avenger. That's beautiful, honestly. You know, our culture wants an avenger for sexual sin. Do you know that? I think one of the fascinating conversation or one of the fascinating layers about the Me Too movement, which we should not scorn, it's a cry for justice. It's a cry for restorative justice. It's a cry for, uh, I can't say this other word, justice that is retributing. Put an I-V-E at the end of that. Retributive? Sorry. It's a cry for justice. But you know what it's really a cry for? An ultimate justice that cannot ever be known if there's no avenger. And the beauty of the gospel is Jesus is the avenger. So listen, um, while there are disheartened persons in a Me Too movement who are trying to just cry out, there's no justice here, and they're right, uh, in this lifetime, in a sense, the beauty of the gospel is there is always an avenger, and there is not a single moment of sexual abuse, of sexual, of human trafficking, of sexual, of human trafficking for sexual intent. There, there's not a moment of sexual violation that has gone unnoticed by Jesus. And when he returns, he will execute justice in every person who has, trans, has, has trespassed against another person will find Jesus as avenger. There is true justice in the gospel. And so for all those who carry deep wounds and scarring, not only should you have an expectation of restoration in Jesus, a restoring of what's broken, you should be able to rest in the beautiful reality that there will be final justice as well because Jesus is your personal avenger. He is personally offended against the wounding that has occurred against you and he will execute justice. There's a really sobering word there for us, though, too, fam. I mean, really sobering. It says all these things. Isn't that the language he uses? Avenger, yeah, in all these things. So, look, we have a real problem sometimes as Christians, like when we take our little trips around Joe's Pond, I think I've said this before, we sit in here and we think, well, clearly this sermon is for the L or the G or the B or the T or the Q or whatever other letter we put in there. But we always leave out the most important letter. It's the U. The sermon's for you. It's for me. It's, in, it's for me and my disordered sexual desires. My desires that are disoriented. So let's just be honest with this. I have trespassed on all three counts. I have trusted culture and myself more than I have trusted my creator king at so many points in my life. 
as it relates to my sexuality. As a young teenage boy, as a young single Marine, as a young married man who brought incredibly porn-informed and self-centered sexual expectations into a relationship that disadvantaged it from the get-go and postured my wife in my mind as somebody who existed to make sure that I was happy. Those are sexually disoriented desires. I have followed my desires beyond the good boundary borderline of my creator king more times than you can count. I have fantasized, I have daydreamed, I have undressed in my imagination, I have pursued porn, I have pursued entertainment choices based upon its rating that I know will have a moment of sexual expression in it that would otherwise be off limits to me. Jesus is an avenger in all these things. We're not talking about seconds, fam. We're not talking about minutes. We're talking about minutes that turned into days and days that turned into weeks and weeks that turned into months. I have trusted my sense of sexual adventure more than I have trusted the goodness of my dad. And knowing full well that my dad has said no, I have chosen to follow my desires instead. And you know what's really sobering about that? Every time, every time I did any of those things, I trespassed into the sacred space of another person. And if the screens right now could display for you the face of every young woman that in my rebel tendencies, in my disoriented sexual desire, I have personally wounded. You just get up and walk out of this room. What else is there to do? You know, we talk a lot about desire is ultimate, but aren't you glad it's not? Because you do have a lot of really good and beautiful desires, right? And that's good. Those are God-given. But I mean, are you like me? Do you, do you have ugly desire in there too? Like, have you ever desired something really dark or hurtful? Let me just ask you, what if, what if our culture's ethic is actually true, that desire is ultimate and the king, the crown is on desire's head, and so you follow desire? What, what's the end game there? I mean, if I followed my desire, I'd be a murderer. Like, I'm not even kidding. If I followed my desire, I would be an adulterer, and I'm definitely not kidding. Let's put it this way. If my dad could, if my, if my desire life could download into my dad's soul, and my dad was going to operate on every one of those desires, I would be ashamed to call him my father. If my brothers in America and one in Italy could right now receive the full catalog of all of my personal desires, and they live those desires out, I would get on a plane as soon as the service is done, and I would fly to each one of those places, and I would have it out with my brothers, angry at them, furious for the families they've wrecked. I mean, I would be angry. But I'm talking about my desires. And so here's the beauty of the gospel. Because that's heavy. Jesus is postured against you as an avenger for every way in which you have trespassed sexually. But the true and better word, the beauty of the gospel, is that the very one who is your avenger becomes your advocate. Check this out. John 8, I know this story is familiar to most of you, so I'm not going to preach a second sermon. I just want you to see this because we need to feel this. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. There is a second sermon here. You could preach a sermon right here. Why was the man not there? Like to my point of a sexually permissive and predatory culture that um, affirms and celebrates men more and scorns women for the very same, right? Very few things in, in life have changed in thousands of years. Where was the man? But here she is. They placed her in the middle. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, and they had. 
the, the, law, the law had. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote. Something else from the law, something about mercy, uh, something about judgment. Uh, maybe he wrote the man's name. Maybe he wrote the man's name. We don't know. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And so there's Jesus' invitation to you right now. The crown is on his kingly head. Let the first one in here without sin in this area of their life be the first to throw a stone. Like, throw your stone. But guys, when the gospel shapes a call, here's the deal. This family's got one boat, right? We're still on Joe's pond. We got one boat. We're all in one boat. This boat, man, is full of people who have been sexually wounded and violated and are hoping to be restored in Jesus and hoping to receive justice from Jesus. This boat is full of people like me who grew up very self-righteous about their sexuality, only to realize how very broken I was because I had been shaped more by my king, the culture, than my king, Jesus. And guys, there's something else that I need to say that's very important. There, is not, there are not different boats in our family for different expressions of disordered sexual desire. It's not as if some people who sin sexually are more disordered than others or more disoriented than others. The gospel says we are all disordered. We have all displaced Jesus and centered ourselves. And then that sexual disorientation plays out differently. So we don't have a boat for those whose sexual orientation has played out um, towards the other sex. We don't have a boat for those whose sexual orientation away from Jesus has played out towards the same sex. We don't have a boat for different people whose sexual orientation away from Jesus has played out as fill in the blank, all of the terminology from our culture, trans or bi, or just keep on going down the line. In the gospel, one boat, for sexually disoriented people, no second-class citizens based upon what your disorders, disordered desires have done in your soul. We're all disordered. We all get in the same boat, and that boat is we are looking for rescue from Jesus like this woman receives, and we are looking for Jesus to reorient all of our souls so that we can live in glad submission to his design for us sexually. One boat in this family, not two. And we all belong in the boat. Nobody in this family walks on the waters of Joe's pond. Jesus pulled every one of us out. I got to finish. Jesus says, once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. I think he bent down and wrote the names of the women that these, these were pastors basically, and like church lawyers, church teachers, professors. I think he wrote down the names of the women they had been unfaithful with. If Jesus were to walk in here and the scene played itself out right now, he would write John Ransom, and then I think he would start writing, because uh, in our generation, it's more than names, it's apps and websites. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one's here. No one's condemning me anymore. And Jesus said, then neither do I condemn you Go. Now, look, this is more reorientation. This is mercy and grace in the gospel. I don't condemn you either. Now, I'm going to teach you how to live a sexually reoriented life around me. No more sinning. No more trespassing. No more going beyond these good limits. You're going to learn a new way of life. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That's just Jesus' way of saying, take the crown off desire, off culture. It's on my head. But she got mercy, no condemnation. You know why Jesus could say that? Because Jesus was about to go to the cross where he was going to take all of her condemnation personally. Do you realize that's what the gospel is? For every moment that I deserve the avenger to swoop into my life and exact vengeance. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is that the avenger instead chose to go to the cross and let the vengeance be poured out on him so that he could exist not as my avenger, but my advocate. That is the good news of the gospel as it relates to our sexual brokenness. We all have an avenger. We all need an advocate. And the advocate looks at you and calls you now, come to me. I will give you rest and I will give you mercy. And fam, that's really good news because after pastoring for 15 plus years and living my own jacked up life in this culture, 
there is not a single person in this room who is not bearing deep sexual wounds or scars or disorientation. Get in the boat. Receive mercy from Jesus, the avenger turned advocate. Let's pray. Father, some of us need really deep humility right now to receive this. I know from myself, so much of my life as a religious, self-righteous person, nothing wrong with my sexuality. So quick to throw stones at other people's sexual brokenness. Jesus, take the rocks out of our hands. Pull us from the water. Put us in the boat. Please, for, th for those facing you as an avenger, be their advocate. And Father, I just want to finish by praying for those in our room who are sexually wounded. Others have trespassed against them. What should be beautiful has so much brokenness. Jesus, be their healer, be their peace, be their restoring Savior. And Father, even give them peace knowing that there is ultimate justice. Father, we pray that you would be present and heal all those who are broken and dismayed because of the trespassing of others. Father, thank you for giving us mercy where we deserve judgment. Amen.